We are back and have a huge backlog of items to talk about. Let's just plow through a bunch of miscellaneous things, starting with this item from the letters section of New Scientist magazine. We've been sitting on this one for a while. Last February 8th, somebody wrote in a note that diplomatic language contains many wonderfully obscure and precise constructions. The magazine notes that a colleague sits in the cheap seats at the back of a UN institution Recently, the magazine notes, a country representative, who must remain anonymous, suggested discussion of steps that might be taken, quote, in order not to move the discussion unnecessarily forward, unquote. We've long suspected that was what was going on at the UN. How about this item reported in the Sacramento News and Review? Apparently, lawmakers passed a bill last year requiring restaurant-slash-kitchen workers to wear gloves when preparing food, even sushi which is actually less healthy than bare hands, many argue. The magazine notes that uh, there's a bill to fix the glove law making its way through the Capitol as we speak, adding, if the glove doesn't fit... Oh, I have to ask, who thought of this one? Do you want workers strapping on gloves and then not washing their hands as much, or would you rather take your chances with soap and water? I'm in the latter category. How about this item? Caribbean nations last month agreed on a 10-point plan for slavery reparations from European nations that once colonized them. At a meeting in early March, prime ministers from 15 countries and territories drew up a document that includes demands for a formal apology and debt cancellation from former colonizers such as France, the UK, and the Netherlands, as well as money to help Rastafarians resettle in Africa. No, I'm not making this up. I'm just reading it as it's written. How about this item? To quote from Kim Zetter from Wired.com, it's not just the NSA we have to worry about. When it comes to commandeering webcams, for example, cybercriminals, sextortionists, law enforcement, and even school districts have all been doing this kind of spying for a number of years. Luckily, there's a simple solution. Cover your camera lens with a sticker. That will thwart any spy who tries to covertly activate your equipment. And if you're worried about somebody turning on your microphone and listening in, insert a dummy plug into the microphone jack to prevent sound from being picked up by the internal mic. You can make your own by simply cutting off the unneeded portion of an old microphone plug. The low-tech approach may offer the best defense against the predations of high-tech snoopers. All right, an additional item from New Scientist uh, Letters section. We've been sitting on this one for a while. Noted some months back that research papers sometimes have titles that jump out at you. Consider Foundations of the Crazy Bastard Hypothesis from the January issue of Evolution and Human Behavior. Notes the piece. Said bastard men take extreme risks, apparently making other men consider them physically larger. The crazy bastard hypothesis holds that they take such risks to signal to other men that they are formidable competitors. That's according to anthropologist Daniel Fessler of UCLA. 
notes the magazine, the aggressive title, designed to draw the attention of journalists looking for easy news stories, thus appears to feedback to be an example of what it describes. Which, I suppose, makes us here at Radio Parallax crazy bastards. Is that the first time we've been accused of that? I believe so. At least me, anyway. All right, continuing with the miscellaneous categories here. Last August, it was noted that a British charity was telling girls whose parents want to send them abroad for a forced marriage to put a spoon in their underwear. Airport security officials who spot the spoon on the metal detector will take the girls aside for a search. Said Natasha Ratu of the aid group Karma Nirvana, they'll be taken to a safe space where they'll have one last opportunity to disclose that they're being forced to marry. British authorities handle nearly 1,500 forced marriage cases a year, mostly involving ethnic Pakistani girls, and some victims are now speaking out. Article in the Week quoted Samim Ali, a Manchester city official who was forced into a marriage in Pakistan when she was 13 and brought back to the UK pregnant the next year. Said Ali, I had never seen the guy before. On a more amusing note, we have this item held on for the last three months. Apparently a Washington state woman had a shock when a car with a chihuahua behind the wheel crashed into her car. Reportedly, the dog had been left in the running car by its owner as he popped into a store. The dog somehow put the car into drive. The car slowly then drove down the street and into Tabitha or Machea's vehicle. Said she, there was this little dog sitting up in the steering wheel, peeking over, looking at me. I didn't know if I was crazy or if this dog had taken a joyride. Reportedly, no human or canine was injured in the fender bender. Let's talk about stories we're openly skeptical of. And no, Mr. Millen, I'm not openly skeptical about the Chihuahua story. I think that one holds up. Although it is possible the car just coasted into the woman. Perhaps Sparky was not to blame. But we do want to note that the study done right here at UC Davis from wildlife biology professor Tom Caro got quite a bit of ink around the nation. Reportedly... Uh, research done here, explained why it is zebras have their stripes. It was noted that researchers looked at the stripe pattern variations in three species of zebras, noting the thickness, location, and intensity of the markings, then compared the species' geographical ranges with those of tsetse flies and horse flies, along with predators like lions and hyenas. What they found was that the zebra's territories overlapped with areas where the biting flies were most active. Well, that may be, but does that explain that zebras have stripes to prevent them from being bitten by flies? We think that more research is needed here. Being that first and foremost, no one has demonstrated that stripes deter flies. And how about this one? Researchers looking at uh, how CO2 levels apparently rose during the Great Permian extinction of 251 million years ago are now claiming that it might be due to the action of microbes. Now, it's widely believed that CO2 levels rose abruptly about this time, possibly due to an asteroid impact or more likely due to a huge lava outflow in what is today Russia. If a lot of lava hit a lot of limestone, you'd produce a lot of CO2. But reportedly, by examining how the CO2 rose and graphing it out, scientists say this is more consistent with a biological cause than a chemical one. Well, we're again, we're just a little skeptical about this. 
The author of the paper has also said that sometime in the last 400 million years, the reputed culprit, methanosarsena, a methane-spewing microbe, was the recipient of a gene transfer that allowed it to produce methane more efficiently than ever before. Well, maybe. Again, we're skeptical. Something we've been openly and vociferously skeptical about for some time on this program are compact fluorescent light bulbs. First of all, we're skeptical about their ability to produce light. I find them impossible to read by, and I'm not alone in this. And although it's long been claimed that they last a lot longer than incandescent bulbs, that's not been my experience. Do they save electricity? I suppose so. Going without bulbs would also save electricity, which is, which is pretty darn close to CFLs. But wait, it gets worse. According to the Environmental Protection Agency, here are the cautionary steps you should take if one breaks in your house. One, get all people and pets out of the house. Two, open all windows and doors to air out the room. Three, turn off central forced air conditioning slash heating. Four, wear protective disposable gloves. Five, pick up glass using cardboard or similar weight paper. Pick up powder and smaller glass fragments using the sticky side of duct tape. Use damp paper towels for cleanup on hard surfaces. Six, place all pieces of bulb residue and cleanup items in a sealable plastic bag or a glass jar with a lid. Seven, do not vacuum until as much residue has been collected as possible. Then, promptly dispose of the vacuum bag. By the way, we do want to thank Dear Heloise for this list, which notes as a P.S., this does seem to be a big to-do about something small. Yes, you need to use care when cleaning up a broken CFL bulb. Just don't let it panic you. Use common sense and take the safety precautions listed above. That's right. Don't panic. Just get all people and pets out of the house. At least they left off. Run for your lives. Some weeks back, our good pal Will Durst had some comments about things that don't need improvement. High on his list were water faucets and uh, towel dispensers in bathrooms that are activated by you waving your hands. Well, how about this from the water Q&A section from the Sacramento Bee? And of course, that's going to be a hot topic for the next, uh, the next year, at least until we get a wet year, perhaps. But noted the Bee Metro staff in response to the question, most times when I use an automatic flush toilet in a commercial building, it flushes two to three times. Do automatic flush toilets waste or save water? I came from a reader in Orangevale. Said the bee, your experience is common, and it seems these devices do not save water. According to several studies, they may actually use significantly more than old-school manual valves. John Kohler a Yorba Linda-based engineer and water efficiency expert said the primary benefit of automatic or sensor flush plumbing fixtures is improved hygiene, not water savings. And in fact, they mentioned a study they did showing that sensor flush toilets actually increase water consumption by 45%. Kohler noted, it's a big problem. It's a problem also with urinals. So a lot of manufacturers do not like these studies to be out there. Water efficiency people like myself well, they don't recommend sensor flush valves. 
And how about this bogus headline from last month, noting most drug makers to limit farm antibiotics. This is a topic we've talked about numerous times on this program. The national scandal of the fact that we're pumping our meat full of antibiotics as a growth factor because animals in uh, feedlots grow a little faster by the use of these enhancements. But note of the LA Times last month, the FDA said 25 of 26 drug companies were asked to phase out antibiotics to promote growth in farm animals and have agreed to comply with the agency's voluntary plan. This piece also mentions, as we talked about numerous times in this program, that farms use about 80% of the nation's antibiotic supply, sometimes in healthy animals to speed up growth or prevent illness in unsanitary conditions. It's mainly to speed up growth. Noted the piece, their widespread application is being blamed for the rise of superbugs that afflict 2 million people in the U.S. and contribute to 23,000 deaths each year, according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. And of course, people at the uh, National Resources Defense Council have noted that this whole voluntary plan has a giant loophole in it big enough to drive a, uh, a train through. Article quotes Avinash Kar, an attorney for the NRDC saying the FDA is just limiting antibiotic use for growth promotion, but the same animals are given the same antibiotics because of the crowded conditions. Current levels of antibiotic use are likely to continue, but just with a different justification and label that won't do anything to protect human health. And we fear he's right. The FDA should have gotten off its ass on this a long time ago. Speaking of the FDA not getting off its ass, it turns out that the FDA's red tape is blocking better sunscreens. Piece by Brady Dennis in the Washington Post last month noted that tourists flocking to the French Riviera or Spain's Costa del Sol this summer will slather on sunscreens containing the latest ingredients for protection against UV rays. But American beachgoers will have to make do with sunscreens that dermatologists and cancer research groups say are less effective and have changed little over the past decade. The reason for this? Well, applications for the newer sunscreen ingredients have languished for years in the bureaucracy of the Food and Drug Administration, which must approve the products before they reach consumers. Now, our Turkish and sometimes Central American correspondent, uh, Gordon, is of Scottish extraction. He can joke, like Woody Allen, that um, I don't tan, I stroke. And I have observed for many years now that uh, when in the tropics, Gordon has all sorts of high-tech sunscreens, which he gets through Canada or Europe. So you just have to wonder, what are these people doing at the FDA? They've apparently not expanded their list of approved sunscreen ingredients since 1999. That's 15 years ago. Eight ingredient applications are currently pending, some dating to 2003. The FDA noted that U.S. consumers, quote, have access to a great number of sunscreen products, but said that it recognizes the public health importance of sunscreen and has prioritized its review of the long-pending applications. The agency said it is proceeding as quickly as practicable, giving available review resources and competing public health responsibilities. Well, it sounds like they're taking a page out of the United Nations in order to not move the discussion unnecessarily forward. And by the way, there is a bit of a debate over sunscreen. Some people think that we may be using too much of it and that uh, not all sun is bad and that we are having vitamin D deficiencies. 
because of our reliance on it. On the other hand, there's some evidence now that people who apply sunscreen every day have fewer wrinkles and that their skin is visibly smoother and more elastic than the skin of those who don't. Of course, this is research coming out of Australia where there is a rather unique mixture of lots of sun and people with Northern European ancestry. And you can bet we'll continue to follow that story. But in our discussion last week with Thomas Getz, we talked about the time it takes for uh, medical science to get up to speed on what is truly best for patients. So I have to note I was taken aback last June. There's an item I've been sitting on for almost a year. With the headline, Research Explores Choice of Mastectomy Versus Less Radical Surgery. Article by Sandia Somashikar in the Washington Post last year. Noted that a majority of young women diagnosed with breast cancer opt to have a mastectomy rather than more modest, but in many cases equally effective procedure that spares much of the breast. What, what so shocked me about this piece and why I set it aside for discussion, even though it's taken a while to get to it, is the fact that this identical debate was taking place 30 years ago. And there seemed compelling evidence 30 years ago that surgeons were being a little too aggressive in their approaches to breast cancer. This piece in the post did note that the main benefit of a mastectomy over a lumpectomy is that radiation therapy may not be needed and the procedure may offer greater peace of mind. Well, we're not sure why that should be, given that the outcomes appear to be the same. For more information on this, we would refer you to a piece in New Scientist, June 23rd, 2012 edition. That piece had a quote in it which caught my eye, which was that the fear attached to the word cancer leads people to overreact and makes it hard to develop more cautious approaches. We'll have more to say about the subject of prostate cancer in this exact same vein in the weeks to come. But in a related story, we would note that according to Family Practice News, March 1st edition, screening mammography at midlife doesn't save lives. A piece by Sharon Worcester noted that the latest study calling into question the value of annual mammography in women between 40 and 59 years of age is one study among many according to a professor cited at the Rush Medical College in Chicago. Unfortunately, we don't have time to go into this in great detail today, but we'll try to do that in the future. All right, and to close with one final item from the skeptical file, while corresponding via text messages during the eclipse the other night, I noted to one of our political correspondents, Lisa Pease, observing the uh, goings-on in Los Angeles, that to the left of Mars was the star Arcturus, which was sort of similar in color, bright orange. She texted back, NASA says that Saturn, Saturn was in fact to the lower left of the moon. It was funny at that juncture to look at uh, the speed of light as measuring how long ago these events we were witnessing were taking place. The moon's a little over one light second away, something like 1.3 light seconds away. So that was, that was almost instantaneous coverage. In contrast, Mars, which is something like 57 million miles away during the eclipse, means that it was about six light minutes away, which I find to be a rather shockingly large number, seeing that it, you know we're at our closest that we're going to be for the next six years. When you start looking at the stars and their light year distances, it turns out that Arcturus, shining as a color rival to Mars, well, the light striking our eyes left in 1977. And that's one of our near neighbors. 
mind-boggling. Anyway, let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Got lots to go. Lots to go.